Well, we're going to be looking at Second um, Corinthians chapter seven, verses two to sixteen. So, if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hands, and the ushers will bring one to you. Um, it's just nice to have one in front. We're going to have it up on the screen, but it'll be nice to have one that you can refer to when we're looking at other things. Okay. So I'm going to start out with a quote. And I think probably most everybody has heard this quote, but I'm just going to read it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's from, everybody probably knows, that's from the Declaration of Independence. And it seems so foundational to our culture that we all kind of just take it for granted. This is our God-given right. But then there's some things that make us question it a little bit. I remember seeing a movie, and I'm not good at remembering movies. Probably you all remember. There's one where um, somebody's daughter is dating this really weird guy, and the mom says, it doesn't matter as long as she's happy. And you hear that, and you go, ah, that's funny, it's a comedy, of course. And you know it's funny because something doesn't ring quite true about it, right? And so we're going to be looking at that. Is this really a God-given right, and what does the Bible have to say about this? So I'm going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, <clears throat> starting with verse 2. I'm going to read this, and we're going to focus in on really what... Paul's expressing his emotional content here. It's just just loaded with emotion. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you, I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my last letter, with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that You suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, It was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. 
but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by, all of, by you all. For whatever boast I made about, uh, to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So this thing is just loaded with emotional words. On the one hand, you have this more the sad words, afflictions, fear, downcast, mourning. He says grieve or grief eight times, indignation and longing. On the other hand, you have all these expressions of joy, pride, joy six times, comfort seven times, refreshed and affection. So this thing is loaded with emotion. Paul's using... Um, <clears throat> What in those days in their Greek culture was considered a rhetorical technique it was called pathos, just this pouring out of emotion. And it's not that he was using this to manipulate. This was really what was in his heart. He was expressing genuine, genuinely what was there. But he understood that emotion actually influences us a lot. It influences us in what we do. And he's trying to connect with the people that he's writing to so that they'll take action. There was a, a talk uh, given at, at my workplace a f- couple of months ago, and somebody cited a study that was done where people had had damage to the part of their brain that experienced and expressed emotion. And you would think that, okay, those people didn't have emotions, so maybe they would be like Mr. Spock on Star Trek. Very logical, methodical, they know what the right thing to do is, they would make the right decisions. But what they did, what they discovered when they did the study was they found out that those people couldn't make any decisions at all. They were completely indecisive because... It turns out that emotion is what actually motivates us to to action. And Paul is understanding that. So he's expressing a lot here. Let me analyze that a little bit closer. We're going to read this again because one thing, it's helpful to read a text a couple of times. It sinks in our mind better. And the other is I'm going to read it from the NIV, so a different translation, and we'll get a little different perspective on it. Help us to understand it more completely. And then I've highlighted words in the text. Green for the happy words and pink, because red won't show up on the screen, for the sad words. Okay, so we'll, we'll read it again. Make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. 
For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your heart and concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow in my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed by us in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we're encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and have not been, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad that I can have complete confidence in you. I'm not sure if you noticed, but the, this page has a lot more green, and the previous page had a lot more of the pink words in it. So I kind of looked at it, at, at the whole text, and I said, well, let me just go up one for a green, you know, green word, and down one for a red word, and it turns out there's, there's a flow to this. It's almost like music. You have a day crescendo, followed by a crescendo. So Paul's put a lot of thought into this text, but he's expressing himself deeply here <clears throat> so he talks about the benefits of godly sorrow godly sorrow leads to repentance we'll look at that and we'll also look at how paul expresses his own difficulties his challenges as he bears the gospel how he was persecuted by others you see the conflict without the fear within And so Paul is disclosing a lot about his own uh, emotional experience that he went through. And we'll see him as as an example for us. So on the one hand, there's his instruction for those who have sinned that they, they need to have godly sorrow and repent. And the other is we find in him a good example. So first of all, the godly sorrow, I just wanted to point out Maybe if you've heard a lot of sermons before, you might have heard the word um, repentance in the Greek is metanoia. And so it's, it's kind of made up of two parts, to change and mind, to change your mind. But that doesn't express the fullness of it. 
Because repentance really involves an emotional content as well as a, a mental content. It's not just changing your mind, but there's a sorrow, there's a remorse there for that sin. Now, as we look at Paul and how he bore the gospel and he faced the trials and the difficulties, there's one kind of line of reasoning that maybe some of you have heard before, maybe some, at least I've heard this before, right? There's a common thought process is, if I push myself in the kingdom of God, I get stressed. And I don't think that that could be from God. Because God wouldn't want me not to be happy. So I shouldn't do that thing. But in the Bible, what we see is an expression that there's both suffering and joy. You notice that in Paul's writing here, there was a kind of a balance of the, the sad words and the happy words. It's not one or the other. So I wanted to go back and revisit a, a text that Nick preached on maybe a month or two ago. This was Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. And he used this illustration that comes from the book, How People Change, by Paul Tripp and Tim Lane. <clears throat> and in this book, it's, uh, it's got an illustration that really is expressing just what's in that text in Jeremiah. There's two trees, one on the left and one on the right. And it's called three trees because there's a cross in the middle. But what you see is that those who put their trust in the Lord, they draw from the Lord. And God is like, we could think of the, the analogy that Jesus makes. Rivers of living water flow from those who believe in Jesus. He's an infinite resource. And so those who put their trust in the Lord will bear good fruit. Even when hardship comes, when the sun beats down on that tree, it still bears fruit because it's drawing plenty of water from that infinite resource of the Lord. On the other hand, there's those who put their trust in man. And it says, cursed are those people. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, but cursed are those who trust in man. Why? Because there's nothing there. There's no root there. So they're like the plant that bears thorns instead of fruit. Like a plant out in the desert that's all thorny. And when the heat comes, they wither and die. So that's a sort of a picture of what it's like... <clears throat> But I think we can get some benefit out of looking at this tree, these two trees in a, a little bit more depth. And that is, think about in our own lives, we tend to have a mix. There are areas in our life where we, we don't trust fully in the Lord. We're still trusting in man. And when the trials and the, and the difficulties come, they stress us. It causes us to look inside ourselves and we realize that we're not in that area of trusting in the Lord fully. 
So this is kind of how this godly sorrow works. It brings repentance. Helps us to realize where our trust isn't in the Lord. And we can repent and turn away from that and put our trust in the Lord. So God uses this kind of to make us go down and up on the other side. He uses this to transform us, to change us, to grow us, to mature us in Christ. So this is godly sorrow doing its thing. And and oftentimes when we step out in obedience to the Lord, it brings on those trials and difficulties, as it did in Paul's life when he faced resistance from other people. And when that happens, it helps us then to, to grow in the Lord. And it also helps us to show the glory of the Lord. Because in those areas where we do trust in Jesus we find that we still bear fruit. We're still loving people in the midst of the stresses and the trials and the difficulties in our lives. And that shines, that shows the glory of Jesus Christ. So people will see the good fruit that's coming from us and they'll give praise to God. So we can be thankful for that as well. So this obedience requires us then to trust in the Lord. It also requires us to, to depend on God. So I'll tell a story, go back 31 years ago. And 31 years ago, I was uh, second year in college. And I was hearing sermons at church and reading the Bible about Abraham from the book of Genesis, from Hebrews 11, and thinking about Abraham's faith and how he stepped out in faith. The Lord told him, go to the place where I will send you. And he didn't know where that place was. Leave your father's and mother's house and go to the place I'll send you. And he just did it. He obeyed. And so the image that came to my mind as I was thinking about those things it came from the you know the English expression getting out on a limb. So I was imagining being out on a, standing on a limb of a tree in pitch black darkness at night with no moon in the sky and you're not near a city so you're out in the countryside where there's no glowing lights. And so you can't see anything and you take a step. God says move forward, you take a step. And then take another step, and another step, and every, t- every step of the way, when you step out in obedience, you find that the Lord is solid there under your feet. And this was the image that I had. And it wasn't long after that where um, a student from Indonesia came to me. He was a believer. He said he went to the Urbana Missions Conference, and other universities were having international Bible studies, and there was such good things happening there. I said, wow, that's such a good idea. And we got to talking, and who's going to lead this thing? And he pointed to me. <laughs> and I, I knew I had no experience. I didn't know what I was doing. I said, Lord, I don't know what to do. I went to pray, and it seemed God was confirming in my heart, yeah, we should do this. So I started this international Bible study with my Indonesian friend and some other Korean guys, and we got really close together. We, we ended up... Uh, rooming together, and we got uh, spent a lot of time together, disclosed all of our intimate feelings and secrets with each other. But I was making a lot of mistakes 
So I had no idea what I was doing. And so there were areas where I was confusing my uh, belief in God in certain areas with some cultural things that I grew up with, and I wasn't really able to sort those out very clearly. And so I was conflicting with people. And one of them, he got angry and upset enough that he just stopped talking to me. This was a guy I was really close with. And we were living in this, this suite, six rooms, together with one living room in the dormitory. And he would come into the room, give me a little smile, and then he would say hi, and then he would go into his room and close the door, and he wouldn't say anything more. And my heart was broken. I was devastated. I thought, what have I done? How can I make this up? I tried to approach him. What can I do? What, what have I done wrong? He wouldn't tell me. That caused me a lot of anguish, but it was, it was useful in, for the Lord to do that to me because in the process I was able to open up in my heart and dig down and, and understand where my assumptions were wrong and question what was really from the Lord, what was just coming from my background and help to sort those things out. So scroll ahead a few years later, um, graduated from college, went to graduate school, got married, and we came out here to San Jose and worked for a few years, and then we had an opportunity for a job transfer to go work in China. So we went to China, and because I think because of all those experiences, I was able to see the Lord at work there, and God did some amazing things. Not not because of me, but because of him. He was just at work there. There was just so many people were coming to know Christ. Lots of new believers. They all had questions. They were eager to learn. And so we found ourselves very busy doing the things of the kingdom of God and, and just loving it, loving to see the people growing in faith. And then, um, so that's... That's, you know, you can see you have to really depend on the Lord to walk in faith. Because the faith, walking by faith will bring us into situations where our good fruit will be seen and then the people can give glory to God. It also brings us into situations where we, our thorns come out. And mostly, other people don't even notice a lot. They probably just see the tip of the iceberg. But a lot of what's going on is internal turmoil within ourselves. But this is the way that God takes us to the side where we can depend on Him more. It's um, a lot like another image <clears throat> that God uses. And this is First um, Peter 1, seven. Peter says, we suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So this is another image of heat up the gold until it reaches the melting point. And as it melts, the impurities float up on the surface, you can scrape off that dross, and then the metal becomes pure. It's much more valuable that way. And this is what God does in our hearts 
as he leads us through trials and difficulties. So we um, we went, you know, we had a great time seeing God at work in China, and a two-year assignment at work became three, got extended to four, then five, five and a half, and finally six and a half years. Finally, we came back. And all of a sudden, I'm back here in the States, and all of a sudden, all the things that we were doing just came to a sudden halt. Things that I tried to do, all of a sudden, everything failed. I would tell people about the Lord, and they would throw it back in my face, and I seemed like it was rejected everywhere. I remember one time, um, our previous pastor, Steve Fuller, he gave us, um, it was around Christmas time, he gave us little packets to give out to people, to our friends and people we knew. These were little gift packs for Christmas. Inside was a New Testament and some tracts. Very useful stuff, were wonderful th- things. And I gave those out to different people that I knew at work. And then one day my, my boss called me in and said, you've been... You've been taking those, those, you've been kind of, uh, what did she say, proselytizing? And there's literature involved. Can't do that. Right? So all of a sudden I'm feeling, wow, my livelihood is it's being threatened here. This is a scary thing. And then, but on the other hand, there was one guy I gave this to, and we had a good conversation. And this person had an alcohol problem, and he died. About a year later. So I was very thankful that I was able to share with him. So you just don't know where the fruit will be, where the difficulties will come. But at the time I was feeling frustrated. Now try this thing, it doesn't work. Try that thing, it doesn't work. Everybody's kind of telling me, what's, what's wrong with you? Why are you talking about the past and all the glory days in China? What's going on with you? Gradually, the Lord started bringing fruit into our lives. And so, um, a guy from that I knew from work for many years, he came and approached me and several of the other guys that, that he knew were believers. He said, let's have a, a men's group here at work. Friday's at lunchtime, we'll get together we'll go through a, a class called Men's Fraternity. So we said, okay, well, let's do that. And then it was great. We learned a lot. How to love our wives and our children and all those things. And when we, we finally got through that. There was video material. There was a book we bought. And we got through that. And we finished it. And we said, we really wanted to keep meeting together. And I said, well, how about that? Let's use the Bible. And we don't need to buy any materials. Everybody's got a Bible. And we'll just... Talk about what it says and how it applies to our life. How about we do that? And so we talked about which book to choose, and we decided to go ahead with that. And then we opened it up for all the ladies. And there was a lady that we invited to come, and she was um, not involved in any church. She grew up in a church. So she had some background there. But she really hadn't thought about those things for many years. She started coming. She knew all of us. 
Because we had worked together for two decades. And so she really felt, you know, she made, she felt at home in that group. That was, this was like, this is my home. I love this. She got all excited about it, told other people at work and her friends, and she went to CrossFit and she would tell the people, hey, I'm going to Bible study on Friday. And she started teaching her children about the Lord. And then she has a friend, um, a woman who's in an abusive relationship, and she's work, helping her work through that and praying for her, giving her counsel from the scripture. All of this just woke up in her. The Lord was doing good things. And then Ming Lan, my wife, she's, she had a really good friend from China. Uh, they grew up together in Shanghai. And this friend moved into the same neighborhood with us, within walking distance. So Ming Lan and her, they got to talking and they started a Bible study together. And then her friend invited her friends and one of those became a believer and was, was baptized a while ago. So we're thankful for those things. But I was seeing, you know, God, there must, there must be more. We can do more. But I don't see it, any more other things happening than this. I, so I kept praying, calling out to God. What can, what can there be? And I sought out some training. What could be more effective? How can I be a better witness. And then I found, you know, Zume and some other training materials, uh, some group called No Place Left and connected with. And learned some skills, things like uh, sharing Bible stories. Right? What is that like if you let's say you're teaching Sunday school for the kids? After you've taught Sunday school for the kids, that lesson, that story is going to be stuck in your mind. You'll remember really, really well. So I encourage everybody to do that. You'll, you'll learn the Bible much better by teaching it than you will from just sitting here listening to us. But, you know, I would get to work, and, and they started this thing at work, free oatmeal for breakfast. And to keep the health insurance costs down, right? Keep us all healthy. So we got, I said, oh, that's great. I come into work. I was eating oatmeal at home anyway. So I come into work, and there's a few guys there, and, and people that are, uh, they come from the CrossFit group and from work, people that I have known for a while. And then we just start chatting. You know, we got 10, 15 minutes just, you know, talk about whatever. So somebody says, well, what did you do last weekend? Well, I taught the kids in Sunday school. Let me tell you the story fresh in my mind so tell them the story and using some of the the training that we got right the zume there's one portion it's called soaps bible studies there's scripture observation application prayer and sharing the last part sharing is the challenge right you want to share what you just read this morning in in the bible so i would just read the bible in the morning i'm going to go to to breakfast it's fresh in my mind but knowing that i'm going to share it helps me to remember it better and after getting in the habit of doing that it helps a lot but the first few times i can tell you where my heart was i was like 
this seems weird. I just don't feel right. It's scary. Because I'm changing a habit. It's something I haven't done before. So it feels awkward. It feels wrong. But it's not wrong. And then we started to walk around our neighborhood and pray and we'd engage with the neighbors and chat with them. And sometimes the topic we'd get over to talk about the Bible and we'd invite our neighbors to study the Bible together. So would you like to read the Bible together and see what it says, how it applies to your life? And most of the time they would be nice and say, well, I'm just so busy. I'd love to do that, but I've got a lot going on and it's hard. But one of the neighbors said, yes, I'd love to do that. You don't know until you ask. And so we've been getting together, looking at the Bible, started with the Gospel of John, chapter 1. One chapter about every two or three weeks. Now, yesterday we just finished chapter 13. The Lord's working in his heart, and his wife too. So you don't know, but you have to take that step out. I didn't feel really easy. I had a lot of fear inside of me. Where that fear came from, I don't know. Those are those, those uh, thorny fruits, you know, the irrational fears, the selfish anger. Those are the things that come to the surface we need to repent of. And then one of the guys in our Friday lunch group, he invited, uh, well, he, he had people, he's in the Chinese church, and he had people in this Chinese church who couldn't speak English, like almost not at all. And they had friends who couldn't speak English who were outside the church, and they said, we'd love to start an English as a second language class. But they can't speak enough English to really communicate, so we need somebody who can speak Chinese as well, who's a native English speaker. So, he, of course, he recruited, asked me to do that. So, we're doing that now. But I have to really ask the Lord in faith to lead those uh, people who invited them to keep following through with them. But we're we're using the Bible as a text. So, we'll we'll have some conversation about some normal thing uh, that people always talk about: food or going to the DMV or something like that. And then. We'll say, okay, any more questions about that? Then we'll, we'll turn to a, a short Bible story, and we'll read through that. And so I'll read through it um, one time, and then we go sentence by sentence and explain everything. I let them repeat it back in Chinese to make sure they understand each, each sentence, and we kind of analyze some of the words, and then we go back, and then we read it again together, and then they read it in Chinese. So they really get that story, that Bible story, thoroughly. My friend's telling me, a lot of them, they don't have any other place where they're exposed to the Bible. So, I thank God. You know, this is just God who keeps adding thing after thing. And of course, now all these tools I've been trained with, I said, well, I, I can help pass these on to the kids in Sunday school. So we're, we have the elementary age group, and I'm trying to teach them how to do the three circles. And it's a gospel presentation um, that in a format that's easy for people to understand, even if they don't have any background in Christianity. 
You know, you probably all have heard the the one with the gospel bridge, right? You have the there's God on one side, there's man on the other side, and there's this huge chasm in between that's made by man's sin. And then Christ comes, and through the cross, he bridges that gap so that we can get to God. And that's a sort of a simple illustration, but most people won't get it very easily if they, if they don't already have some Christian background. So the three circles provide some of that background and talks about the brokenness of the world and how um, the world wasn't always that way. God made it good. And then how Jesus came into the world and died on the cross and rose from the dead and all the good things that he did, that this um, then is how we get from this broken world, which is caused by sin. That's how we got from the good world that God created was by sin. And then how do we get back reconciled with God is through Christ. So it's just kind of three circles. And one of these days I'll have the kids come in. I'll ask Nick for permission. But I'd love to have the kids to come in and and share that with all of you so you can see um, what they're learning. And maybe I'll divide it up, three kids, three circles. Because right now they're not quite ready yet. But they will be, I'm pretty sure. And then introducing to them the idea of accountability, right? In a Bible study, you want to ask, how does this apply to your life? But with the kids' curriculum, somehow we, we hadn't been thinking about that so explicitly. And so I'll just ask the kids after we do this Bible story is, how does this apply to your life? What, what difference does it make? What are you going to do in response to this? Well, the first time I asked them an application, they... they Give me a blank stare. So, what's that word mean? <laughs> right. So, I knew we were onto something. And then I'll, I'll come in at the beginning of the class and say, "What did you learn last week, and how did that apply?" So, we try to connect the things together. And last is the city team. The Lord put it on my heart to go and help out at city team at the learning center, and I've been doing that um, for a while now. And that one I didn't have to struggle with. Uh, to be honest, it was it was just a joy from the beginning. It's, it's something just resonates with my heart. So I was going there and helping people with uh, uh, studying uh, high school equivalency, or you know um, how you know fix up their resume so they can get a good job, that sort of thing. And we have conversations, and sometimes it turns to the Lord. And I'm thankful for that. And um, have our brother Carlos is here today to share with us. And it's been such a blessing because I've been able to share a lot of what I'm learning with Carlos. And so when, now that he's believes and has been baptized, then he can go and do the same and make more disciples. That's Really, what's the heart of God is disciple-making. You know, it's oftentimes to think about what do people say. And I've heard this on different occasions. Maybe not all of you think this way, but some probably do. People will say, well, disciple-making makes me fearful. I get, I'm afraid to get rejected, and so I just don't have the gift. And the implication behind that is, well, somebody else will do that but not me. 
One thing I need to clarify, though, when we talk about disciple-making, that's not just the evangelism. It's the whole process of sharing the gospel, seeing somebody who's responsive to the gospel, who believes, repents from their sins, they get baptized, they grow in faith, you lead them to the point where they're able to reproduce and make more disciples. That's, that's discipleship. So evangelism is just one piece of that. But let's see what the Bible says. What did Jesus say? Anyone who loves his father more than me is not worthy of me. Anything that got in the way of the gospel, Jesus was ready to clear it out. He was very upset with the teachers in the law. Woe to you experts in the law because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you've hindered those who were entering. In other words, those people who were saying, oh, we're going to give you all these rules to follow and they were, they were blinding people to the gospel, the grace of the, of the cross that Jesus was going to sacrifice himself. And they opposed Jesus and he was... Not happy with that. Same thing with Paul, with the Judaizers in the book of Galatians. What I mean by Judaizers is not the Jewish people, but those people who were saying, you have to, be, you have to follow all the laws of the Old Testament, and you have to be, uh, if you're a man, you have to be circumcised, and all of that. Said so you have to do all of that in order to follow Jesus. And Paul was very upset about that. And rightfully so, because that prevented people from coming to Christ. This is at the heart of God. So he didn't want to see that happen. In fact, if Paul had lost that argument, none of us would be here today. So God gives a multitude of gifts to his people. Most of us have not just one, but many. And where God gives gifts oftentimes on the occasion when it's needed. But he gives the gifts in order to advance his kingdom. It's to glorify himself. So the gift of making disciples doesn't make sense. It's everybody is to make disciples. And whatever gifts we have, we apply it to, towards that. Jesus said... And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory. That's a pretty tall order, right? Look at what he says. For my sake and the gospel. Lose his life for my sake and the gospels. If you want to know what it means to live for Christ, it means you live for the gospel. That's what he's saying. You say, well, it seems like Jesus is requiring us to do something. Is Jesus a legalist? No. Far from it, right? It's all those legalists he was radically opposed to. 
the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you know how he interacted with them. It was a, there was a lot of conflict there. They were the ones that put him on the cross. But it comes out of love. So let me give an illustration, and sorry, Minglan, this is just hypothetical. <laughs> okay? But Minglan's my wife. I love her. Right? I also love chocolate. So if it's her birthday, let's say, uh, let's say today was her birthday, which is hypothetical because it's not her birthday. But if it was her birthday, and I said, well, let me get some chocolate and give it to her. And actually, I want some too. <laughs> right? Is it really for me? Is it because I love her? Is it because I kind of want what I want for myself? So what I would do, what I ought to do when it's her birthday is, Think about what she would like. Take her out to eat or cook dinner for her so she doesn't have to cook because then that would make her happy. Right? So I should know what she wants and do that, and that's, that's love. Right? Now, what if I say, oh, I'm going to take her out to eat, but I, I just have to do this because otherwise she's going to condemn me. <laughs> that wouldn't be out of motivation of love. Right? It would be weird. So when it comes to our faith, we love Jesus. I love Jesus. So I love what he loves. What does he love? What does the Bible say? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loves the world. He wants us to love the world too. If we love God, then we'll love the people out there. Not only the people in here, both. He wants us to love one another. Obviously, that's commanded in the scripture. That's the tall order. That's the one that comes highest priority. But he loves the people out there who aren't here, who are far from God. He wants to expand his kingdom and share it with everybody. That's his heart. If we love God, then we're going to love them. So, if I don't love the world, can I really say that I love Jesus? Or I'm just saying it. What he gets at here is all the followers of Jesus live and die for him and for the gospel. And when it comes to emotions, emotions is a mixed bag in the kingdom of God. This is an album cover. My daughter made that. <laughs> and uh thing I what she did, she she gave me an album last Christmas. She collected a bunch of Christian music from all kinds of genres. Reggae, rap, rock and roll, fast music, slow music, you name it, everything. And this whole broad collection all mixed up. And I just love that Christmas present. That's my favorite Christmas present ever. And yeah, mango jam and pickle jam, banana jam. It is a cute cover. Well, you know, the kingdom of God is a little like that. It's mixed when it comes to emotion. There's joy. There's so much joy in seeing a new disciple who's built up in Christ and see them growing and getting closer to the Lord. There's nothing more joyful than that. There's joy in when we see God glorified. There's nothing more joyful than that. When God is glorified and His name is lifted up and we see people worshiping Him. Especially if they weren't worshiping him before, and now they are. That's awesome. 
in our relationship with Jesus, when we're intimate with Him, when we pray and we, we sense His presence and we worship Him, that's joyful. It's a deep joy. We build our life on that. That's how we can be fruitful is from that foundation. But there's suffering as we bear the gospel of Christ. It's not all fun and games. It's not all joy and peace and love. It's also there's some hardship involved. But it's not all about emotion. We don't live for the sake of pursuing happiness. We live for the gospel, for Jesus. So, let me go back and review one more time about Paul's suffering for the gospel. He says in chapter 1, this is still 2 Corinthians, if we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. The apostle suffered for the gospel's sake. And he says, the Corinthian church suffered the same sufferings he suffered for the sake of the gospel. Let's look at what Paul endured. Remember verse 5, we read it. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. What did that look like? We have detailed record of that. What, where did he was in Macedonia? Three, three cities are described in the book of Acts. Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. In Philippi, he cast out a demon from a woman who was telling fortunes and making a lot of money for her masters because she was a slave. And when he cast out the demon, they realized that their chance of making money was gone, and so they went to the authorities, and they they ended up getting Paul and the apostles flogged severely. They went on to Thessalonica, and there were some Jewish people who were opposing Paul, even though Paul himself was Jewish, but these, this particular group was opposing Paul, and they stirred up a bunch of Gentiles, and together they all made a big riot. So Paul had to leave. He went on to Berea. He found those people very receptive to the gospel. Things were going well until somebody came over from Thessalonica and stirred up the people, agitated the crowds, and then the other disciples scurried Paul out of town because they didn't want him to be killed. So he went on to the province of Asia, which is also described in 2 Corinthians, in the town and the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a, actually was a big city. Paul was, had so much success in ministry in Ephesus that those who were making idols, were th- their business was threatened by it. You think about that, right? So there's a silversmith that he goes out, starts stirring up trouble. He gathers all the other silversmiths from the silversmith guild. And then they, they gather another big crowd around them, this huge crowd of people. They storm into the, the stadium, it's like a big football stadium, and they're shouting for hours on end, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, their idol. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over again. 
And Paul is outside and he's, he can't wait. He wants to go inside and the, the other disciples hold him back because they know if he goes in there, he's going to get torn apart and killed. Now you can imagine in that situation, Paul's heart was pounding. He had fear. Now that kind of fear is not sin. That's just being human. He was a human being and he was, his body was going to react in that way. When his life is being threatened. That's normal. That's the kind of things he faced for the sake of the gospel. So, these, what we consider to be negative emotions, they're necessary. Let me just sum it up. Sorrowful repentance from sin is a necessity. If we're sinning, we need to repent. Turn away from it. If... We haven't had the love for the people in the world that we should have. We should repent from that. Suffering for the gospel is often necessary. And what, I, what I mean there is, it's, we don't really know, we don't control the circumstances God does. Sometimes we see things totally joyful and there's not really much uh, negative stuff going on. And sometimes it gets hard. That's God's choice. But oftentimes it doesn't feel good. And sometimes it's our own sinful hearts. Like in my case, I was struggling with fears. That was because of my own sinful heart. I needed to repent from that. But it can be not because of that. It can be totally, you know, you're doing the right thing and God is bringing hardship. But it's worth it. There's an eternal joy that goes with that. And you see that expressed in in Corinthians. But we want to press through in obedience by faith. Imagine if Paul had stopped there at Philippi and said, They beat me so bad, I can't take it anymore. I'm done with this. He didn't do that. He kept going. He brought the gospel to the next place and the next, even though his life was threatened in those places. Because for him, the gospel was more important than how he felt. And that's how it should be for us. But if we press through, if we persevere, we're going to be rewarded. Because God is going to give, give to us a greater and deeper faith as He brings us closer in relationship to Him. So, I'm going to close with some challenges. You, you see the outline has some blanks there. Left that open so you can write it down. The questions and your answers... First is, is there a sin that I need to repent of? Second, is there a barrier to break through for the gospel? You know, where are you stuck? Like I was stuck before. And if you are, you know, we can help. I can get you some training. You can come ask and I'll help show you some of the materials. But if you're stuck, you don't have to stay stuck. You know, we can press through, we find a way. Third, is my life's purpose happiness? Or is it the kingdom of God? And last, what's it going to take to reach the South Bay for Jesus? This question can occupy you for the rest of your life, I think. This is a this is tough. You know, 
what I've experienced, you know, just a couple of years ago, I wasn't seeing anything happen. And prayed, asked God, but I had to face my fears and press through and do things that I didn't feel comfortable with in order to start seeing some, some little bit of results. But in order to reach this bay for Christ, with its million people, more than a million people, it's going to take a lot more than that. I know that. I just get a little glimpse of what it's going to take from that. And so we need to think about things in that, that way. That Whoever who loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. What it's going to take is we have to lay down our life. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be challenging. We have to face our fears. We have to endure a little stress. It's going to take something, but we can count on God to be there with us. Father, we thank you for your word. It's powerful. We pray that you will help us, Lord, to obey you and to persevere. And fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.